Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. We're just going to dive right in this morning. If you didn't have a chance to grab a Mark journaling Bible, go ahead and grab one on your way out, or you can even run out there right now and pick one up. Uh, in fact, we have somebody at the back here. If you want a Mark journaling Bible, just raise your hand right now. Uh, we'll pass these out. So we're giving these away for free. Uh, because we want the Word of God to constantly wash over us. And as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we want you to bring this, take notes, scrawl in it, write your prayers in it, because we believe that by the Word of God, it's never going to return void when it goes out. And so with that in mind, we're going to read Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 this morning, and then we're going to pray and dive into our teaching. So this is the Word of God, Mark chapter 1. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, you say in Isaiah chapter 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. We trust in that, Lord, that your word endures. There is nothing that can come against your word. Your word is not subject to change. It does not uh, change with uh, changes in culture, it does not waver, and we know that even though everything fades away, all human flesh, all riches, all glory, your word will never depart us, and we want to trust in it more, God. And as we study it now, as we look at the words of Jesus, and as we hear more about his life and his death, we pray that it would just penetrate our hearts. For those who need comfort this morning, Lord, I pray that this word would wash over them. I pray for those who need to be convicted that you would pierce them to the heart. And God, for those who need to be challenged, I pray that you would be so working in them that they would repent and believe the good news. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. So you may not have known this. During the Middle Ages, it was the year 525, and there was a guy, his name was Dionysius Exegus of Scythia Minor. It's a good name, by the way. Uh, if, you're looking, if you're looking to name a boy in the near future, that's a good one. Uh, I'll teach you how to spell it afterward. But uh, Dionysius composed a new measurement for time. I didn't know this. I just learned this this week. Before Dionysius, time was measured in regnal years. That is, time would be measured by when a particular king reigned. So, for example, when you would ask, well, when was so-and-so born? You would say, well, he was born in the 15th year of King Charles. Or, hey, when did that event take place? You would say, well, it happened in the 25th year of King Gabriel. But what Dionysius wanted to do is he wanted to have everybody on the same measurement of time. He wanted to have a single point in time, not that changed with every new king or queen, so that every year before or after that point in time would receive a number. So Dionysius, who was a Christian, decided that that single point in time against which everything else would be measured every year would be uh, considered, he wanted it to be the most important event in human history, and the most important event that he could think of as a Christian was the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. From the time of Dionysius on, that's how time began to be measured, and that's why we have 
after every single year, B.C. and A.D. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. means Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. And for Dionysius, the coming of Jesus marked a significant turning point, a significant turning point in all of history. For him and all the Western world, there was no more defining event in all of history. And last week, if you were with us, we were beginning our study in the Gospel of Mark. We're embarking on this new journey together. And it's a gospel, we learned. It's a biography of the life of Jesus. And as we witnessed, Mark shared the same sense of magnitude at the coming of Jesus that Dionysius did as well. For Mark, the coming of Jesus was a turning point. It was a turning point in all of history. For him, no greater event could be imagined. And Mark even opened his biography. You can look at it if you have page one open in your journaling Bible. Mark refers to Jesus as Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus is the promised king from the Old Testament. The Old Testament made these promises stretching all the way back to the first book of the Bible that a coming king was going to visit earth. The true king of heaven and earth was coming. That's who Jesus is. Mark continues. He also says Jesus is the son of God. He was God who became man, the God who came to earth to live among us. And for Mark, the coming of Jesus was not just a remarkable event. It was an event that signaled a turning point in the history of the world. Nothing would be the same after Jesus' coming. And as I was reflecting on our text last week that we were looking at, you know, I was reminded of a conversation I had recently. It was a conversation with somebody who had a lot of questions about Christianity and they had an important question, and I, I'd wager that if you've been a Christian for any number of years, you've actually wrestled with this question as well. But his question was this, how do we know that Mark is true? After all, this person made a good point. He said, I wasn't there to see it. I, I didn't witness Jesus' life. I didn't actually see his miracles. So how can I know that Mark is telling the truth? And like I said, that's an important question. Many of us wrestle with it. And, and here's the reality. If you need to see or witness something to believe that it's true, then the reality is you will never believe in Jesus. That's just a fact. You will never believe in Jesus. But let me challenge you with this. You will also never believe that Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States. You'll never believe that he wrote the Declaration of Independence. You'll never believe that the Titanic sunk in the year 1912. This goes even further. You'll never believe that your biological parents are actually your parents. Because even though you were there for that event, anybody here remember that? <laughs> you don't exactly remember it like you, what you ate this morning. Does anybody remember what they ate this morning? No? Me neither. But here's what I would guarantee. If I were to ask you who wrote the Declaration of Independence, after Googling it, you would answer Thomas Jefferson. Or if I asked you who are your parents, you would answer, well, my parents. And why would you answer that way? Why would you answer that way? Well, you'd answer that way because you trust the people who told you, you trust that Google is a reliable source on the life of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you trust that your parents are a reliable source. And when they tell you, you are my child, you're prone to believe them. So the question really is, 
Can you trust Mark? Or take it even a step further. Can you trust the New Testament? Can you trust all the books of the New Testament as a reliable source to the life of Jesus? One ancient historian put it well. He said, when it comes to the New Testament documents, we as historians have an embarrassment of riches. Here's what he meant by that. This historian meant that when you compare the New Testament manuscripts to any other ancient document, not only do we have far more copies of these New Testament documents, but the New Testament documents are also much closer to the actual date of Jesus' life and the time of their writing. Let me give you an example. Plato. Anybody here read Plato when they were in college? Well, Plato's works were written in about the year 400 B.C. Do you know when the earliest manuscripts we have of the works of Plato are? It's the year 900 A.D. He wrote in 400 B.C., but the earliest copies we have of his writings are 900 A.D. That's 1,300 years from his writing to the earliest copies that we have of his writing. And guess how many copies we have of Plato's works? Seven. Seven copies. Now refer to another work, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, written in the year 100 B.C. The earliest manuscript copy we have, again, 900 A.D., that is 1,000 years from the life of Caesar to the earliest copy we have of his works, and we only have 10 copies of it. Let's compare that to the New Testament. The New Testament was written, you know, in total between around the years 45 to 96 AD. And most of the earliest manuscripts we have date on average to around the year 300 AD. That is a span of about 200 years between when they were written to what the copies we have are now. 200 years compared to 1,300 with Plato compared to 1,000 with Caesar's Gaelic Wars. And if you had to guess the number of copies that we have of the New Testament, what would you guess? There's seven of Plato. There's 10 of Gaelic Wars. Well, we have 6,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. We have 10,000 copies in Latin and more than 10,000 in other languages like Syriac. That's what led one Cambridge scholar to say this. When it comes to the wealth of manuscripts and above all the narrow interval of time between the writing and the earliest existing copies we have, the New Testament is by far the best attested text of any ancient writing in the world. So can you trust Mark? <laughs> well, I would just put it this way. The answer from ancient historians and New Testament scholars is an emphatic yes. When it comes to Mark and the rest of the New Testament for that matter, we have an embarrassment of riches. You can trust Mark. And Mark continues his gospel this morning recounting the life of Jesus and he, and he puts this in two scenes. Scene one is in verses 12 and 13, and then scene two is in verses 14 and 15. Mark gives us two snapshots, two scenes in the early ministry of Jesus. And if you look at verse 12, you see where scene one takes place. Jesus has just been baptized. We, we read that last week. He's been filled with God's spirit. And then we read in verse 12 that that same spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and Mark is careful to note here, 
You're going to see this in verse 13. He's careful to note that Jesus is driven into the wilderness with an unambiguous purpose. He says, verse 13, that he, being Jesus, was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. That's his purpose. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. There's that movie Slumdog Millionaire, which came out a a number of years ago, won eight Academy Awards. It's a fascinating movie. It's about an 18-year-old from Mumbai, India, and he's grown up in poverty his entire life. He's been through many tragic events, as you can imagine, growing up in poverty in a developing country. And he's looking to change his life. So he has this break in his life where he becomes a contestant on who wants to be a millionaire. And he faces all these questions all the way up to the million-dollar question. And with every question that he faces, it triggers something in his mind that's a flashback to an event that he had in the past. And that event helps him answer and understand the question that's before him. So these events that are flashing back give him a sense of the significance of the question and his actions in the here and now. And here's what Mark's doing at the beginning of this opening scene. What he's doing is he is doing a subtle flashback because in the mind of any Jewish reader, they would have read this first scene, verses 12 and 13, and their mind would immediately flash back to another temptation in the Bible where a man who was considered somewhat of a king was surrounded by wild animals that were just created. And this man was approached by Satan and tempted by him directly. Their mind would have flashed back to Adam, that first creature, that first human created by God who is tempted by the serpent, Satan. And in both of these temptations, Jesus and Adam, Mark is trying to tell us these are pivotal turning points in human history. They are defining events in the human experience. And in the case of Adam's temptation, many of you know the story, it opens with God creating the heavens and the earth. And you see this beautiful picture of harmony and order. God creates light and then he creates darkness. He creates the sea. He creates the sky. He separates land and sea. He fills creation with animals and life. And then into this picture of perfect harmony, God does something absolutely remarkable. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God then said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And God then gives Adam dominion, is what the text says, which means he's like a king. He gives him a a reign and a rule over the fish and the birds and the livestock and over every corner of creation. In other words, he gives Adam the privilege of ruling under God but over every other thing in God's creation. He is God's representative on earth. And everything in this story, if you continue reading, suggests God is for Adam and Eve. He's for Adam and Eve in giving them dominion, and he delights in Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.28, we read, And God blessed them. And God said, Behold, I have Given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, 
everything that has breath and life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Everything. God is for Adam and Eve. He's giving them everything for their benefit and for their flourishing. But God is clear. He makes one thing very clear. He says... In the next chapter, Genesis 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. See, even though Adam is king, even though he rules over every single thing and every tree and every source of creation is for him, the tree reminds Adam, God is still God. Adam is under God, but over everything else. Even as God's representative, God is still God. But then Satan enters the picture. And as the story develops, Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan to eat of the tree that God had forbidden. And, and everything in the narrative is giving you this sense. It's kind of powerfully trying to tell you that this temptation that they're facing is completely overwhelming. It's kind of like that Stanford marshmallow experiment, if you've ever seen that. Right? They have all these kids, they're, you know, elementary-aged kids, and they have these experimenters. They take a marshmallow and they bring it in and they say, hey, now do not eat the marshmallow if you don't eat the marshmallow, I'm going to come back in and you can have two marshmallows. But you see these kids. One minute passes and they're just pulling out their hair. They want to eat the marshmallow. Some kids can't contain it. They start nibbling at the corners. One kid's like, I don't care. I'm eating this junk, right? <laughs> the temptation is just too overwhelming for these children. Or you think of that book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've read that. There's the story of Edmund. Edmund's one of the young kids who goes through the wardrobe. He enters Narnia, and he meets there the white witch, the queen of Narnia. And he's tempted with Turkish delight. If you've ever had Turkish delight, it is disgusting. It is, it's awful. We made it one year, and it, it's, it's basically just melted sugar, and it tastes so sweet. Um, I don't know why Edmund falls for it, but he does in the book, nonetheless. And here's what the queen promises him. Hey, Edmund, if you eat this... And follow me, you'll one day be king. <laughs> but as Edmund eats the candy, he soon realizes, no, the witch is lying and Edmund is never made king. In fact, he becomes a slave. He becomes a slave and the world collapses around him. His relationships with his brothers and sisters, his relationship with Aslind, who's the creator of Narnia, crumbles and falls into disarray. That's the same fate for Adam. Adam succumbs to Satan's temptation. He eats from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And instead of ruling over creation and under God, he's made a slave. A slave in the kingdom of darkness and subject to sin, pain, and death. And from then on, you read in the Bible, there is a turning point. Genesis chapter 3 on, nothing is the same. God's creation once very good. Perfect harmony, perfect order, flourishing everything for Adam and Eve becomes a place of greed and violence and injustice and pain and death. You know, I'm often asked by people, you know, if the Bible is God's word, then why is it so filled with bloodshed and hatred and violence and religious abuse and oppression? Maybe you've thought about that. And my response would be, well, have you ever read Genesis chapter 3? Because it's a turning point. 
And if you want a true and accurate account of the world, how it really is, then read the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 on. If you want a true and accurate account of your own heart and what you're capable of, then look no further than what happens to humanity in the wake of Adam's sin in Genesis chapter 3. One author, his name's Michael Lawrence, he put it well. He said, quote, the reason we are the way that we are is because the same blood that ran through Adam's veins runs through you and me. What he meant by that was that all of humanity, including you and me, all of humanity have been corrupted by Adam's sin. And as we go, so goes the world. See, in the Western world, we kind of think, well, we're individuals and we relate to God as individuals and nobody's past actions have any effect on our relationship with God now. But the Bible, on the other hand, tells a different story. Because Adam and Eve turned their back against God, because Adam, the first human being, the first representative of humanity over creation, ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, because of that, we are now corrupted by sin. We find ourselves in Adam's family tree, and the same blood that ran through his veins runs through you and me. We are now born corrupted and sinful and guilty before God. And maybe you've ever asked yourself these kind of questions, or you've had yourself think through these questions, even if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've asked, why is it so hard to be gentle toward my children instead of lashing out in anger? Maybe you've wondered that. Or maybe you've wondered, why do I secretly feel insecure and unhappy when my friends and family succeed? Maybe you've asked, why is it that no matter how much I make, I'm never content? Why is it so hard to turn away from lust, and pornography? Why is it so hard to not be filled with jealousy and pride? Pride is really the great leveler, by the way, right? Because pride cuts both ways, doesn't it? I remember when I lived in Nashville, people in Nashville uh, are great people, bless their heart. Uh, they They all drive beautiful cars. Let's just say that. They all drive beautiful cars. And I remember living in Nashville, and I would often feel insecure because all these people are driving, you know, very nice Mercedes-Benz. They're driving Maseratis. And here I am driving an Isuzu Rodeo with a salvage title that I bought for $1,500 off the side of the road. And I remember thinking, you know, these people must look at me and think, wow, how much better am I than them? And you know what I was thinking as I was driving next to them? Wow, look how spiritual I am. I'm so spiritual, I don't need a nice car. Super spiritual pastor, salvaged car. That's how it works. (laughs) Pride, Pride cuts both ways, doesn't it? Whether you're on the top or the bottom, you're prone to think you're better than everybody else. In fact, we'll do anything to make ourselves feel better than anybody else, including God. You might even be thinking right now, well, I, I don't think I'm better than God. But let me ask you this. As I was just recounting the story of Adam's temptation, I'd wager a majority of you were thinking, why would God do it that way? After all, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. Why would he allow Satan to tempt Adam and Eve if he knows they will sin against him? Do you realize that as you're thinking through that process, there's a couple assumptions in your heart? And those assumptions are, you could write a better story than God, couldn't you? You could do it better than God. 
If you were writing a story that was going to shape the entire world, surely you would not have allowed sin to enter the picture and Satan to tempt Adam and Eve, right? Why are we like that? Why are we gripped with pride and envy, lust, greed, violence, anger? Well, Scripture's clear. It's because the same blood that runs through the veins of Adam runs through you and me. And you take that story of Adam and all of the violence, all of those emotions, all of the things that come in the wake of Adam's sin after Genesis chapter 3, those are all part and parcel of this flashback that Mark wants you to have in mind as Jesus, seen one, enters the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It's Mark's way of saying Jesus is the second Adam. He's the second Adam, born of God's spirit, who came to live on earth to be the representative of a new humanity. You can read the parallel accounts of this, by the way, if you have a Bible. You can look at it at home. Look at Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, and you can write that down. And you can see how Jesus faced the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. And the ultimate end to that story is Jesus wins. Jesus is not only the second Adam, he's the better Adam. He is the Adam who didn't succumb to temptation. He's the one who resisted Satan. He's the one who succeeded where Adam failed. He's the one who perfectly obeyed God in the wilderness. And maybe even more encouraging is Jesus is the one who has succeeded where you and I fail. Jesus has succeeded in every area where you have failed. I love the way that the author of Hebrews puts this. He he writes it so perfectly. It just hits your heart. For we do not have a high priest. He's talking about Jesus here as a high priest who makes a sacrifice for sins. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Where you are overcome by anger, and jealousy, and bitterness, Jesus went. He succeeded. Where you are overcome by lust, and envy, and pride, Jesus resisted. Where you have failed to love your neighbor, Jesus loved you to the fullest extent. He loved his neighbors perfectly. I remember when I first became a Christian, one of my biggest temptations was was with pornography. I struggled with pornography. And the cycle was still the same. It was temptation, failure, guilt, shame. Two weeks passed by, temptation, failure, guilt, shame. Another two weeks would pass by, temptation, failure, guilt, shame. But there was this truth in the midst of my failure, in the midst of my guilt, in the midst of my shame, is this truth that Jesus succeeds where I fail. Jesus is the better Adam. He's the better Daniel. He's the better you. He is the perfect representative before God, the perfect king. And now through Jesus, the the better Adam, God's creating a new humanity, a new family tree, a new bloodline. He's filling people with his spirit, and you can be part of this family. You can be part of his family, and you can be renewed and remade by Jesus, the true king of heaven and earth, the better Adam. See, the point of Mark's opening scene here is not so much be like Jesus. That's biblical. That's good. Resist temptation. Amen. Preach it, Daniel. But the larger point is this. 
Trust in Jesus. Trust in him. The good news of the better Adam is that Jesus is for you what you could never be for yourself. He is the better Adam who lived for you. He lived the perfect life you could not live. And by trusting in him, he makes you born again into the family of God, this new family tree that will endure into eternity. And after Jesus' victory is the second Adam entering the wilderness, defeating Satan, Mark flips over to scene two, and this is in verse 14. In verse 14, we find Jesus in Galilee, and he, he comes announcing this good news of the gospel of God. He announces his victory over the kingdom of Satan, by the way. That's what he means when he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he declares, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus says, in order to enter his kingdom and to be released from the kingdom of Satan, he lays down two invitations. They're very simple. But this is a summary of Jesus' teaching right here in a nutshell. Two invitations that he gives us. The first invitation is to repent. And now, if you're like me, sometimes you can hear that word repent, and it can actually sound a little bit off-putting. Because I, oftentimes when I hear this word repent, what I think of is when my wife Hannah and I, we would go, when we lived in our first year of marriage, we went to this church in Los Angeles. And after the church service, we would go and walk around on what's the equivalent of kind of like the 16th Street Mall in Santa Monica. And there on Sunday mornings, they would have people who would be wearing sandwich boards with Bible verses printed on them. And they'd have their bull bullhorn and kind of in this, you know, bombastic, impersonal way, they would just be saying, repent, repent, repent. All right, I get it, repent. And now I don't know the heart of those people. I'm sure that their motives were sincere. But what I remember feeling is that in that moment, I didn't sense that the desire was to share Jesus, but it was more of a delight that they were in the kingdom of God and others weren't. Maybe that's what you think of that term, repent. It, it can kind of sound off-putting. It can sound distant. It can sound like people standing haughtily over you and taking pleasure in the fact that they're in the kingdom of God and you're surely not. But Jesus' call to repent repent is of a completely different sort. Go back to the story of Edmund. Remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? When Edmund took that Turkish delight and decided to follow the witch, the witch knew something that Edmund didn't. Lewis puts it this way. He says, for she knew, speaking of the witch, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would even if they were allowed to go on eating it until they killed themselves. See, Jesus' call to repent is because he knows something that we do not. That is, that our citizenship in the kingdom of darkness, that our citizenship under Adam and our corrupt natures as children of Adam and our active sins against God now, they lead even though they look attractive, they lead ultimately and certainly to our death. Sin only works in one direction. Sin works in the direction of hooking you in more and more until you kill yourself. So Jesus' first invitation is repent, turn away, turn away from the sin that leads to death and ultimately leads to hell. 
and turn instead to Jesus, the better Adam, the true king of heaven and earth who offers you life and forgiveness and renewal by his spirit. I've shared this story before. They've had researchers who have done this in the jungle wilderness. Well, they'll put a cage out, and it's a cage that has this special mechanism that as a monkey goes by and reaches its hand in in, try, in order to try and grab a banana or, or some side, type of thing that it, it's attracted to, the monkey will try and pull out its hand, but it won't be able to because the banana is wide enough where that mechanism won't let them pull their hand out. And these monkeys will struggle and they'll sit there and they will actually hold on to that banana until they die. That is Jesus' plea here. He's saying, hey, let go of that thing that brings death. Let go of the sin that clings so tightly and turn to me. I will remake you. I will renew you. I will cleanse you. But you have to let go. You have to let go. You have to repent. The bombastic street preacher says repent, and what we hear is be a better person, be more like me, be less of a sinner. But when Jesus says repent, what he says is come to me, come to me, sinner. Come to me, the better Adam, come out of darkness with all of your sin and receive my love and forgiveness. Let go and come to me. Second invitation Jesus gives. See, Jesus is not just saying, hey, repent, he doesn't want us to just feel bad about ourselves all the time, like that's the Christian life. Feel bad about yourselves, and then Christmas comes and we all give each other gifts. But Jesus is saying, hey, second invitation, verse 15, believe, trust in him. Have faith in him is another way of putting that. Trust in him as the one who is for you what you can never be for yourself. Trust in him as your only hope for entering the kingdom of God and being forgiven of your sins. Remember in scene one, Mark wanted to evoke a flashback back to the garden where Adam failed to show us that Jesus has succeeded. Now in scene two, in verses 14 and 15, Mark wants us to think forward. He wants us to actually foreshadow what's to come. If you've ever seen the movie Godfather, I'm a pastor, so I've never seen it, but I'll tell you a little bit about it. Um, in the Godfather, they did this remarkable thing where they used oranges as a way of foreshadowing that somebody's about to get it. They're about to die. So in the opening scene, Salvador Tessio, he's one of the first guys, he's sitting at this wedding reception and he's eating an orange. And once you go back and realize what's going on, you know, oh, Salvador Tessio is about to die. And then later on, you see Don Corleone, who's the main godfather. Again, I don't know, I've never seen it, but he's walking through the streets of New York City and he stops at this fruit cart and he starts picking oranges and putting them into his bag and you know all of a sudden he's about to get gunned down. And then in the closing scene of the Godfather movies, it's Don Corleone, again, the head mob boss, and he's playing with his young grandson and he takes an orange and he's splitting it open and he puts it in his mouth and does that thing that you do with kids when you smile with the orange in his mouth and his child runs away scared and then all of a sudden... Don Corleone sits down in his chair and he slides down and dies of a heart attack right there. It's this subtle way of every time you see somebody with an orange, there's this foreshadow that something bad is coming. Well, look at verse 15. Verse 15, or sorry, again, verse 14. We read, now after John was arrested. 
That word arrested can also be translated handed over. It's a a word that Jesus is going to be using regularly throughout his ministry about how he is going to be handed over. After all, last week, John, we learned, he's the forerunner of Jesus. He's the forerunner of the true king. He announced the message of forgiveness of sins. And if John's fate was to be handed over, what does that mean about Jesus, who's the true king, who comes to bring the true forgiveness of sins, and who comes to make a new family in the wake of Adam's failure? What is being foreshadowed here? Well, Mark is foreshadowing this fate of Jesus, because the next time that Jesus is referred to as a king comes during the last week of Jesus' life as he has a crown of thorns put onto his head and he's beaten and he's scorned. And Roman soldiers kneel down and they mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then as Jesus is being crucified, we read that they put an inscription above his cross and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. This is the king of the kingdom of God. This is the king of the Jews. And do you know what Jesus' response was to that? As Jesus is being beaten, as he's being mocked, as he's being scorned, as Jesus is being crucified, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, at the cross where the true King Jesus was crucified, we see how great our sin is in the wake of Adam. We see that our sin is great. Our corrupt, sinful nature because of Adam was so great that our response to God when he came and visited earth was to crucify him on a Roman cross. But at the cross, we also see that the love of Jesus is so much greater than our sin, so much greater that his response to being crucified was to cry out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If Jesus in scene one is the better Adam who has done for you what you can never do for yourself, then in scene two, Jesus is the king. He is the king of the kingdom of God who has come to die the death that you and I deserve. It's the good news of the servant king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. The one upon whom all of history turns is this king of the Jews. And you know all we have to do in response is to repent and believe and to receive this servant king and to trust the servant king who came to give his life for us. Amen? Let's pray. O Lord God of heaven and earth, you are majestic, you are holy, you are wonderful. You are the God who, from the Garden of Eden till the second coming of Jesus, reigns and rules over all things. And God, we confess before you now that we are people who have sinned against you, that we are people with corrupt natures, that we are people who have hearts that have turned away from you, and we are people who love to live in darkness, who love our sin oftentimes much more than we love you. Oh, but God, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus, the better Adam, who did for us what we can never do for ourselves, who lived in our place and who died in our place and who poured out his spirit upon us that we might be born again, born again to a living hope and born again into your family 
where we can reign and rule in your kingdom as sons and daughters of you for eternity. God, that is good news. And we pray, God, that that good news would wash over us, that we are insufficient, but Jesus is sufficient, that we have failed, but he has succeeded. Help us trust in him more. And God, would we hear this call on our lives, not just in the past, but day by day, repent and believe, and give us the faith to do that more and more each day. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, the servant king. Amen.